in a in a you know an 800 word essay on a very busy website like cnn.com with you know f- millions of people visiting it every day you better have a good first paragraph or they're not going to read the second one they're going to click off and so that is a kind of you know it's not sparse writing but it's trying to really really do a kind of work with every phrase welcome back to drafting the past i'm your host kate carpenter and this is a podcast devoted to the craft of writing history in this episode, I am joined by historian and journalist David M. Perry. Thank you for having me. Dr. Perry has written countless essays in outlets ranging from the Washington Post to Slate to the Smithsonian, and he is the author of Sacred Plunder, Venice and the Aftermath of the Fourth Crusade. More recently, he is the co-author with Matthew Gabriel of The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe, which came out at the end of 2021 with HarperCollins. We recorded this interview back in March, and I am so happy to finally share it with you now. We covered everything from techniques for co-writing, to the joys of a 9-to-5 day job, to the greatness of Helen Rosner, and a lot more. I hope you have as much fun listening as we had talking. So I guess I'll start by saying that I'm dyslexic, and um, writing has always been just a a terrible ordeal for me. Really, I, I remember second grade most clearly sitting down with my mom as she went through all my homework and tried to figure out why my penmanship was so bad. And the answer we now know is that I'm dyslexic and actually forming letters is very hard. And that continued throughout, you know, my middle school and high school. And no one, it was the 80s, no one thought that this kid who read very fast and clearly understood things could be dyslexic. I mean, that just wasn't something, that wasn't a conversation we had. And so I loved learning history. I loved thinking about history. I loved teaching history. But the actual mechanics of writing about history were just were just terrible. And then I do remember the the summer I wrote most of my dissertation. I, I had a desk that overlooked a stream, and I would wake up in the morning and I would try to write a thousand words before I changed out of my pajamas. Because there's this moment when you're writing a dissertation where you just have to put a lot of words down very quickly. And I did, and that was that. I remember sort of feeling good about. Finding a flow that sustained not just for a couple hours, which wasn't new, but for for day after day after day and and really starting to see it pile up. I I guess the real thing that changed is I started writing these short essays. Uh, First first about medieval history and kind of the rhetoric around the war on terror. Then really about, though, other things. My son has uh, Down syndrome. He's also autistic, although that wasn't something we learned until 12 years into his life or 10 years into his life. But he, he was diagnosed with Down syndrome. We learned that five minutes into his life. And I, I wanted to do, I did a lot of reading. I think any, probably anyone, but certainly any academic who has an experience like that, the thing you do is you check out a lot of books and a lot of articles and you, you, you read and read and read and try to learn this thing. But I wanted to do a little writing, particularly around kind of discourse. And so I wrote dis- discourse around Down syndrome, discourse around um, abortion. Uh, and prenatal testing and, and some other hot button issues. And so I started writing essays and I wrote an op-ed. And then a couple of years later, I wrote another op-ed. And then a couple of years after that, I wrote another op-ed. And then I started just writing uh, constantly. And so by the time I hit a sabbatical, I, I tried to write an essay every day and I fell in love with writing. And so I guess the it's, it's kind of a long story, but I, I started, I'm still, I'm still dyslexic. And I started out as a dyslexic kid and then dyslexic grad student who, for whom writing was a real chore. And in my late 30s, I fell in love with writing. Um, and now I'm almost 50 and uh, I've published 500 essays and a couple of books. And I mean, 500, it's a lot. And it's I, a lot. You know, I, I wake up in the morning and I think I'm thinking about writing and I, I write and I write and I write. What was it, do you think, that sort of flipped that switch for you that made you fall in love with writing? I mean, I think I found a voice. I, I got more comfortable with myself. That's certainly part of it, figuring out who I am, leaning into the things I'm good at, not trying to do the things I'm not so good at. But also there's little things. And this is part of what I was excited about being on this podcast, thinking about writing as writing. You know, I, so I'm, my, my eyes are the culprit or maybe my brain. But when it comes to dyslexia, right, it's things entering, it's, it's information entering through my eyes. My ears are not dyslexic. My, my voice is not dyslexic. And so I learned to write by speaking. And if, I'm, if it's inappropriate to write by speaking, I'm often sub-vocalizing. If I'm in a room with other people, if I'm at home alone, I'm vocalizing. I do a lot of drafting, speaking into a smartphone 
on voice to text to generate, you know, about 25 minutes, I can generate 800 words. They won't be good words. They won't be clean <laughs> words. They'll be filled with errors, but there's a first draft and then I can do the work. Um, so it was really a process of getting from my ideas to that first page more smoothly and, and kind of dodging around my dyslexia uh, so that it didn't get in the way as I was, as I was working. What was it about writing essays that, that got you excited about that form, going from the dissertation, which is obviously <laughs> a, a long form, big slog, to the essay form? Yeah. Boy, I wish I knew how to, I wish I knew how to write essays like this when I was in grad school, you know, to just sort of sit down and generate a thousand pretty good words in an hour. I would have had a very different experience in grad school, a lot fewer incompletes. But of course, I was writing different things. I was, I was reacting to the news. I was reacting to my life. I was thinking... I was thinking differently as a writer in ways that are pretty common, right? People write journals, people write personal essays, but that had never been my practice in part because I hated writing. And so finding that I could either by using dictation or by, by writing in the gaps between other busy parts of my day, raising kids, I often would try to start writing an essay while my kids were eating bowls of cereal in the morning. Then kind of the pace of it would, would, would bring me through and suddenly there'd be an idea on the page. And once there's an idea on the page, then the writing is easy because the idea is down. It's really exciting. And I am trained as a historian. So if there's information I need, I go out and get it. And I was able to write about new things in terms of my personal life and, and the things I was encountering in the world. And then having developed those skills, I was able to go back into writing history and both in formal academic contexts, maybe finishing my first book and, and some of the last kind of academic essays that I wrote uh, during my career as a professor, but now also in the more popularly oriented historical work that I'm doing. Um, it's these skills I developed writing about my kid, my two kids, about gender discrimination for four-year-olds, about uh, the discourse around prenatal testing and Down syndrome, about gun control in higher education, about students learning, that, that these are things that I got to write about my marriage, right? I got to write new stuff and find new skills, and then bring those skills back into my work as a historian. Talk to me a little bit about how your career as a writer and your career as a historian and academic interact or have interacted. So I was a professor for 10 years at a small teaching school in Chicago called Dominican University. And, and I loved it there. I loved it there. It's a heavily first-generation school. It's over, it's a, it's a, the technical term is a Hispanic-serving institution that that opens up various kinds of federal funding and, and designations. It's important. Um, but it's over 50% Hispanic, including lots of uh, first-generation Americans or, or the children of first-generation Americans. It has a large undocumented population and is really takes the Catholic social justice language very seriously as an institution to, to defend, defend their rights and be outspoken about it. Um, it you know, so the social justice aspect of the university was wonderful and the teaching was rewarding. It was hard particularly early on to adjust, but it was very, it was really very rewarding. And, and I kind of mentioned this because, I mean, one, it's true, but also when I started writing about, for example, abortion, which is a complicated thing for a, a secular Jewish professor at a Catholic university to maybe write, <laughs> it was clear from the first instant that my university had my back, from the first instant that my, my, my chair, and I, mean, I wrote an essay about my son in 2008, when Sarah Palin had been nominated for vice president and she has a child with Down syndrome about a year younger than my son, I was really frustrated. I mean, it's about discourse, but the essay, if you read it, you would know it's about discourse, but it, you know, that's not a word that I would use in a, in a popular essay. It's really about discourse and about this child as an object in the conflict over abortion rights, rather than as now a child who's born, who is going to need support from the federal government with his mom running for vice president. So there's, there's the essay. Um, but I was a little scared writing it. And, you know, my dean had a, has a search for the university. So he saw it, I think, by six o'clock that morning and sent me an email saying it was great. My pro, he forwarded it to the provost. She sent me an email about 30 minutes later saying, this is great. Anything you need from us, let me know. So I really think it's important if people want to do this kind of public writing, that institutions support them. And that when there's blowback, and there was blowback, that institutions are ready. And that's I will say that universities have come a long way from where they were 10 years ago, where getting 100 emails would seem like a panic, whereas now universities like 100 emails, yeah, but 
this was read by 2 million people. So that's actually not a lot of emails. You know, currently, if, if my university is getting emails yelling at me, I don't, they don't tell me uh, unless it gets really bad. <laughs> so anyway, so I, I, I was in a heavy teaching load. I did write a book. The first three public essays that I wrote, I wrote over my six years of tenure, pre, pre-tenure of ten, ten, on the tenure track. I wrote a bunch of academic essays. I did write a book. I didn't have to do, I had to do very little actual writing in that kind of position. What I had to do was, was teach really well and serve and on committees and be a member of the faculty. And I did that too. But I, I did this writing. I discovered I had a book in me. I wasn't sure, but I wanted to make an argument over 90,000 words rather than three arguments over 12,000 words. So I, I wrote this book, but I didn't have to do it in six years. I did it in eight years. Um, I didn't have to do it for 10 years. And I do think that's, again, kind of a really big deal because books sometimes are slow. And I remember one summer realizing the middle of my book was terrible. It was just bad. It was, it was bad. Um, it was from my dissertation and it wasn't good. And so I took 45,000 words and I rewrote them into 18,000 words. And then I wrote 10,000 new words. And that was the summer. But if I had had to get my book out for tenure, I would have just filed my book. I would have just sent it in or as is, because I would have had to hustle. So the thing that I discovered, though, is that during the summers and, and winter break, I could do the longer form, slower research and writing. Um, and particularly as a medievalist, you know, there's a, there's a ramp up time for me anyway, to get my Latin brain turned on, to get my <laughs> Italian or French or German brain turned on if I'm reading scholarship. I mean, it doesn't, you know, it's not like I can just sit down and open a document and just jump right in. I, I have to warm up my brain a little bit to start thinking as a medievalist. And that's not possible when teaching a high course load. It's not possible between one o'clock and three o'clock in between two classes when you're also answering emails and grading. But what is possible is writing a draft of an essay and reacting to the news and thinking in that sort of way. So, so I found this shorter form writing, this looser, shorter form, faster writing worked beautifully in the context of a heavy teaching load as a professor. So these days, when and where do you do your writing? So a couple things happen in my career. I, I mean, I quit. That's really the big thing that happened. <laughs> um, but before, before I quit, I had a sabbatical coming up. And it's the only sabbatical I had or will ever have. And I applied, as one does, for a lot of funding to stretch it from a semester to a year. And I didn't get any of the funding. And that's fine. I mean, it's totally fine. I am a realist about my, my CV. It's a good CV, but it's not you know, a, a world-beating CV. And every, I also feel very honestly that everyone I know in academia is pretty brilliant. It's filled with brilliant people. So the competition is stiff. I was not upset by not, I was disappointed, but not upset. But the same month that I got rejected for all of my funding, I had a piece about sexual violence and Down syndrome that like national sexual violence, organizations fighting against sexual violence wrote me to tell me was good. And I had a piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education that forced a president of the university to change policy and to call me and to try to tell his side of the story. And that was kind of neat. And then I had someone who worked for the Obama administration send me a message saying, I've been passing your writing around the building. And wow. you know, the building is the, the White House, right? <laughs> um, well, in the, you know, the Eisenhower building next to it, but it's the White House. And so on the one hand, I had, you know, lots of rejection notices, totally normal for academics. On the other hand, I had this kind of it seemed like I was succeeding. So I really, I made a mental shift that I would try to give this public writing thing five years and see what happened. And that was 2014. And I'm now in year, whatever it is, seven of that five-year plan. It's going pretty well. We wanted to move back to Minnesota. We were in Chicago. One of the things about academia is that you don't usually get to choose where you live. And a job came up in my old department as an academic advisor. Uh, advising history majors. I, I like programming. I like advising. Um, but it was a big shift from a full professor by that point to being a staff member and not a high-ranking staff member at, at my former university. But it allowed me to go, to, allowed us to move, which is, there's a lot of reasons to talk about why we wanted to do that. But it also allowed me to shift from having a professor's job to just a day job. And while it's true that being a professor gives you a lot of flexibility, it also is a job that can expand infinitely to fill your days. And then you get the summers and that's great. But I mean, it can, you know, when I'm teaching, all I'm doing is teaching. I'm, and when I'm great, you know, then there's piles of grading to do. And, and it's great. I love that part of my job. But now 
My job involves students asking me questions to which there are answers, and I usually know them, and students coming to me with problems for which there are solutions, and usually I can just do it. And then we smile at each other, and they say, and I say, have a great day, and they say, I will. And then the workday ends, and I don't think about it till the next day. And during the day, there's some time to write. So I'm really writing all the time. I have a day job. I'm just a writer with a day job now um, in a very normal way. It comes with healthcare. I like it. I love my day job. I love working with students and advising them, but it is not an all-consuming job. It is not a job in which I can't, you know, write for 20 minutes, then talk to a student for 10 minutes, then write for 20 minutes and talk to a student for 10 minutes. And that's what I do. So talk to me a little bit about your process as a writer. And I'm sure that this is different depending on what you're writing, but- right. I- Right. What kind of software are you using? How are you organizing yourself? <laughs> yeah. That sort of thing. So so I do everything on Google Docs because I used to move between lots of different computers. Now I mostly just have one laptop, but I still do everything there. And in part because my process almost always involves taking a pretty good draft and handing it to someone else, an editor, to do a lot of work on and then coming back to me. Um, And I think Google Docs works well for that. I I am in the middle of a set of edits on Word with a a brilliant editor, but it's been like the, sometimes Word gets in the way in terms of how the track comments work and reversion, things like that. Whereas I I find Google Docs is great. But also I open a Google, when I have a draft and it's sort of kicking around my head and it's not coming out, you know, I'll drive 20 minutes to the store. I'll drive to Costco and I'll open that Google Doc and I'll hit the microphone button and I'll say three or four sentences and then it goes beep. And I, you know, I'm keeping my eyes on the road, but I hit the microphone button again and I'll just say three or four sentences. And it is how drafts, when it's hard, it's not always hard, but it is how drafts emerge for me in, in almost every context these days. I've got a draft about a spectacular new book on um, the, the Roma in medieval Islamic, in the medieval Islamic world is spectacular. I dictated that. I've got a draft going on the public charge rule on immigration. So very not historian. I mean, there is a history component because that's always true, but it's really about the Biden administration call for public comments on immigration rules. You know, I dictated that one. I've got a draft going about this desk that was made by workers and the Jewish workers in the Warsaw ghetto. They gave it to my step-great-grandfather. My mom had it. She passed away. It just arrived in my living room on her birthday last week. It's a lot to lot to unpack there. I, I I have a lot of emotions about it, but I started by just kind of speaking into my my speaking into my phone and letting some words show up on a Google Doc, and then opening the Google Doc on on my desktop. And I do think the seamlessness of moving from platform to platform outweighs any of the. I mean, Google Doc, Google Docs is a pretty limited word processing program as as it goes, but the seamlessness of moving from device to device really outweighs uh, the demerits. The other thing is I just co-wrote a book and we could talk, I think, a long time about co-writing and maybe that's on your list, <laughs> but we co-wrote a book during a pandemic. So working in the cloud was the only the only option uh, to get that book done. So what is then, I, I do want to talk about co-writing, but I first want to ask what your revision process looks like then. So you, you do some dictation, you get a, get a Google Doc going. Are you a person with sort of clear drafts or is it iterative? It is iterative, but the thing that is different for me for 99% of my writing, really everything but the book, so all of my public essays, is that I'm working with professional editors who, who have a say in what goes live. And in particular, I'm often working with professional editors who have very different styles and very different thoughts. Sometimes I'm working with editors who have edited 50 or 100 or 150 of my essays. There's three or four editors out there, all of whom it occurs to me, in fact, have advanced degrees, in, mostly, mostly in English. You know, they, I, can't tell, I can't tell you what that relationship is like. It is so foreign to the, the writing that academics do, to have an editor who knows all your moves, who knows how to draw your best prose out of your writing. It is a collaborative process. And 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 every writer like me who works in public knows it. I don't know if we always say it, but to the extent that my essays are good, they're good because I have this editor. So writing a draft for an editor is different than writing a draft for an academic journal or getting something you're ready to submit to an academic journal. 
writing a draft for an editor is getting the draft. You have to do a lot of work. You don't want to hand editors junk because first of all, they won't work with you again. And second of all, they'll be mad. But you also, like, you don't want to get too precious about the, the, the small details of your prose because your editor is going to have thoughts. And sometimes when I really am comfortable with an editor, I'll send them a bad draft and I'll say, hey, Ted or Jane, these are real people. Um, this is a rough draft, but I just want to get your thoughts real quick before I take it to the next step. And they don't, they know me. So they know that I'm not wasting their time and they'll give it a quick read. And, and, and so it's a really different kind of process. And one I wish that we could bring into academia a little bit, that we could build more, more ability for people to have a draft that's ready to file, that's pretty good, that's pretty close, but that everyone, they're still very open to the idea there might be quite substantive ways of, of fixing and, and changing into that revision process. Well, let's turn now, if you don't mind, to talking a little bit about The Bright Ages, which is I would love a, new, to. a new book that you have out, you co-wrote with Matthew Gabriel. Talk to me a bit. I know you've written elsewhere about this, but talk to me a bit about how this came to be a co-authored project and how you wrote it together. Yeah, well, I mean, part of why I was really excited about being on this is that I, I have talked about a little bit, but this is the podcast about writing. And I think there's I think there's an interesting writing story. And again, one worth reflecting on in terms of how we, we, I mean, I don't actually train grad students, but let's pretend that I did. And I do work with people who do, but how we as a field think about collaboration. And if there are ways, you know, there are lots of historians who collaborate, but I certainly never did in graduate school. It was never talked about in grad school. None of my training was about collaboration. And so kind of in this conversation for this podcast, I think it's really worth thinking about. So first of all, Matt and I've known each other for a long time, but the first thing we wrote together was an op-ed for the Washington Post. And it was about Oh, it was about myths about Western civilization and white supremacy in reaction to a congressman saying some things that were Steve King from Iowa saying things we thought were racist. But we wrote it with him in Virginia and me in Minnesota, I think in December. I can vividly remember sitting on my couch with the TV on in my pajamas at night, receiving edits in a Google Doc from Matt and going through them and getting it ready to send into the Washington Post. And it was seamless and easy and fun. That, that collaborative process. And so, so Matt, actually, he was, the, the, the story is that he was at the British Library. He was at an exhibit um, on the, the treasures of early medieval England. It was a great exhibit. Then he went to the gift shop and all of the books that he saw kind of generally on the European Middle Ages were, were either out of date or bad or both out of date and bad. And so he texted me from England and said, let's write a book. And I said, texted him back and said, we're going to call it the Bright Ages. And, and, and we were launched. And our idea was that we would meet. And we'd, we'd get together, we'd, we'd do work on our own, maybe we'd email back and forth, but we'd get together pretty regularly, especially if we could sell the book and get in advance enough to buy a couple plane tickets, we'd meet and we'd, we'd work together in person. And, and that happened to write our first draft of the first introduction. I went to Virginia Tech, we worked on it together. I went back to Virginia Tech a month later, we finalized our proposal. Six months later, we had a contract. That's a long story. We had an agent and a contract. It was a, that's complicated and, and something, again, I think historians should know more about, but we'll table that one. Uh, he came to Minnesota. We rented a cabin. We went fishing. We wrote a couple more chapters. That was going to be our process. It would have been a great process, but then COVID happened. And, and so instead, what we did is we divided up the chapters and one of us would write a first draft and send it to the other one and tell the other one it was ready in a shared Google Drive folder. And I do think that the sort of minutiae of how we organize these things is, is actually interesting, right? We had a shared Google Drive folder, uh, a subfolder for each chapter with resources and, and such things. And then, and this is the most important thing we did. When we received the other person's chapter, we just wrote on top of it. We did not track changes. We did not ask each other for permission to, to re-edit or reorganize stuff. We just wrote on top of it as if it was our own draft with carte blanche, and then we'd pass it back. And then the other person, if they wanted, they could keep writing on top of it until we got to the point where we were happy with where the draft was. And then we would turn on track changes and really carefully try to finalize it so it was ready to submit. Uh, and and that that's just a process we came up with. I'm sure other co-authors do other things, but it's worked really well for us. And then as we started writing essays together, we would just send each other drafts and have a section saying, make this better. <laughs> like we put a note, you know, 
so-and-so and, you know, something happens in Arthurian literature. David, you, you do that bit. Or I was writing about kind of the history of the use of the word crusades. And I know Matt's better at that than I am. So I would say, insert section on history of the word crusades. Matt, you go. And that was, and he did. And, you know, but that, that was not a day one process, right? That's, we've now written hundreds, you know, well over a hundred thousand words together, published well over a hundred thousand words together. So that, that's a, that's where we are now. Sure. I, I find this fascinating because I did wonder how you make sure that your voice is consistent throughout. And so this process of sort of writing on top of each other's work makes a lot of sense. That must really take a, you have to put your ego away, it seems like a little bit. You, Was that you, challenging? You it, so Matt can tell you whether it's challenging for him. I don't think so. It, it wasn't challenging for me by the time he wrote this book because of my, I, I had published hundreds, hundreds of essays with dozens of different editors some of whom have a heavy hand, some of whom have a light hand, some of whom were paying me pretty well for my work, some of whom were paying me terribly for my work. You know, I'm, you know, talking about like from zero to $50 an essay to, you know, over, you know, to a dollar a word, which starts to actually to, to add up pretty fast. You know, there's light editing and heavy editing and non-editing. And I just had gotten, I lost, I have lost all of my preciousness about my prose. Of course, I never really had preciousness about my prose because as I, I, I really mean it when I said I was a, an unhappy writer. I had awkwardness about my prose. Um, and so I have also gotten over that a little bit because, I mean, I still have a hard time believing that people think my sentences are good, some of them. But, um, you know, I have been public. A, a lot of people have published my work, and so they must not be terrible. And so I'm just, I'm just used to writing something the best I can and handing it to someone and saying, here's how you make it better, and then just doing that. And if they say, hey, this isn't good, just cutting it. I'm super relaxed about that. That hasn't always worked out. I had an editor who it took me about five essays to realize what he liked, that he was used to working with high ego editors, high ego writers. So he would cut more than he wanted cut so that they would reject half the cuts and keep half the cuts. So he'd send me an essay with all these cuts and I'd like, great, we'll just cut it all. And then he'd be like, wait, David, I didn't need that. (laughs) So it, it is a process, but I, I, you know, if an editor says cut something, I, I try to just say yes. I, I mean, that's my instinct. If an editor says cut it, I just cut it unless, and you know, every so often that doesn't work out for me. So the same thing was true as I started collaborating, right? If Matt took something and just rewrote it or cut it, fine. That's fine. Mostly fine. I'm still a little mad about Matilda of Tuscany and I'm especially, she's just someone I really liked. I wrote a lot about her. Matt said, this is not actually what this chapter is about. We have to cut it. And he's right. And that's, uh, I'm sad about that. But I really, you know, it's the example, the one example, but I'm not actually mad about it because Matt was right. It's a better chapter because those thousand words are cut. That does, though, lead me to the next question I really want to ask about the book, which is you are covering or could be covering just a massive amount of material in this book, you know, try, and, and trying to make it come together in a way that's appealing to a non-specialist audience. How do you decide what to include and what to leave out? How did you outline it ahead of time and sort of envision the shape that it would take? It was very hard. It was very hard. So, so part of what we would keep reminding ourselves is that we weren't writing a textbook. And, you know, if anyone teaches medieval history and wants to use it as a textbook, please do. I would use it as a textbook if I was teaching an intro class, but we didn't write it as a textbook. And what I mean by that, I think when you write a textbook, which are, which are important and is a real craft, you have to, you have some obligations towards coverage. You're never going to cover everything, but if you leave big things out, you're really not doing your job as a writer in that genre. And I really believe in respecting genres. Even if you want to, you know, break norms, you have to know what the norms are before you break them and whatever you're doing. So for example, there's one of the most important political stories in the Middle Ages is a thing called the investiture controversy when, you know, the popes and the emperors went at it over who got to pick bishops. It's a much longer version. It doesn't really show up in our book. There are, you know, there's the, 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 the great Hungarian empire, which is a really important uh, political entity. It doesn't really show up in our book. I spent a great part of my adult life thinking about Venice. Venice doesn't really show up in our book. And while I think you could write a textbook without Venice, you certainly couldn't write a textbook without the investiture controversy. That, that would be, that would be, that would be the, a mistake. But we were trying to make an argument. We were not trying to write a textbook. We were not trying to claim coverage. We were trying to make an argument about how to think about 
this thousand year period. And we were trying to do it in under 300 pages because there is another genre and it is, uh, it is often referred to as the dad history book and it is absolutely gendered and, and class and, and race, the dad history book. And they're very long and they sell for a lot of money and people buy them for their dad on Christmas. And then their dad might read them or they might just go on a shelf next to the other big books. And there are some wonderful, extremely long popular history books like that. They're wonderful. But we weren't trying to write that either. Uh, and so every time one of us, and this was part of the, the, the benefits of the co-author, every time one of us would start to go astray and say, and panic, I panic all the time, we're leaving this thing out. The other one would say, David, we're making an argument or Matt, we're making an argument. Does that thing we're leaving out, is it necessary for the argument? And that was really the, the, the process. I can't, I mean, there are other ways to make that argument. There are, there are holes I see in the book, in part because I know what chapters we didn't write or we didn't finish, but it really, it really helped. And, and just let me give you one example. So we have a chapter on early Islam, which is one of the most incredible stories in world history. Um, the emergence of this this religion and then its its rapid expansion. And there are a lot of really good, even popularly oriented books on that story. So we felt like we had to talk about it because we wanted to bring Islam into the story early. We wanted to talk about Jerusalem. Um, we wanted to, we were working against the narrative of the clash of civilizations, the sort of that classic terrible narrative. We're working against it. We needed to write that chapter. It wasn't just going to be a footnote or a you know a side story. But what were we supposed to do with this? You know, you could write 500 pages on that story easy. We wanted to do it in 4,000 words. And this took me a while to get to. Um, I did draft the first version of that chapter. It was a very bad draft with huge holes, but <laughs> I did draft it. But as I reached the end of my first terrible draft, I realized that what I wanted to say was that Islam is a medieval European religion, not only a medieval European religion, but there is no point after about 700 in which there aren't Muslims living in Europe, period. It's a pretty simple argument, but there, it, it's an argument that carries a lot with it, that the story of European history includes Muslims who live there. And so once I knew that that was the argument I was working for, then the chapter fell together and all the things we didn't talk about, like the fall of Persia or the battles with the Chinese in Central Asia or the Sunni-Shia split or... Um, a million other things, or, you know, naming the first four caliphs or the development of the, I mean, I teach this history. I know this history. It's an amazing history. All these things we didn't talk about, it became easier to not talk about because we were trying to get to the, there are Muslims in medieval Europe. They live there the whole time. To learn more about how David and Matthew approached writing their medieval history, I asked David to talk me through the thought process behind the very first paragraph of the introduction to the Bright Ages. Here's how that paragraph goes. Our story begins on the east coast of Italy, on a sunny day sometime around the year 430 CE, when artisans entered a small chapel and turned the sky blue. The workers labored in the city of Ravenna at the behest, we think, of a woman by the name of Gaia Placidia, sister of a Roman emperor, queen of the Visigoths, and eventually regent herself of the Western Roman Empire. A devout Christian, she built or restored churches in Jerusalem, Rome, and right here in Ravenna. Perhaps she commissioned and ordered the decoration of the small chapel as a reliquary. Perhaps she planned it for her eventual tomb or to house the body of her son who died in infancy. We have theories, but no sure answers. What we do have is a building where once artists pressed into fresh mortar glass tesserae, small trapezoidal shapes infused with the blue of lapis lazuli, to turn the ceiling into the richest blue sky. They then took glass infused with gold and filled the heavens with stars on the ceiling. On the blue wall, they added other tesserae of white, yellow, and orange to the mix, replanting the flowers of the Garden of Eden. The technologies behind the mosaics were ancient, but the people depicted in this world of blue sky and golden stars emerged from a very specific combination of time and place part of a complicated, but not cataclysmic, transition that would shift balances of power, cultural norms, and ideas about the deepest meanings of human existence. Let's talk about this paragraph. Let me start with the story of writing it, because it's a good story. So that first visit to Matt, 
in March of early March of 2019. We had this idea of the Bright Ages. We had talked to an agent who had reached out to Matt years ago and and but had had never agreed on a project, but at least he would take our email, right? So we kind of there wasn't a cold query. Matt said, Hey, I'm thinking about writing this book called The Bright Ages about medieval Europe with this guy David. What do you think? And the agent five minutes later, like, let's get David on the phone. If you do this, presses will want it. So we had we had enthusiasm from someone who knew the market, which really matters because you know, I don't know the market. I don't, I mean, we're talking about second books now. I'm not going to discuss that further, but I still don't know the market. Like, like we have lots of ideas, but which ones, you know, will sell. And that does matter. Um, so we had an agent, we had enthusiasm, we had a title and we got together. Um, there was a little conference in West Virginia that I gave a keynote at and did a little workshop. And we, we talked a lot about the book and we had an idea of how we'd structure it. I had to, to leave at 4.30 in the morning to drive from Blacksburg, Virginia to Charlotte, North Carolina to catch an early flight to get back to Minnesota ahead of a, a March blizzard. And, and so, you know, I'm driving over the Appalachian Mountains before and during dawn in a rental car. And what do I do? I pull out my phone and I open a Google Doc and I hit the little mic button. And I say something like, our, our story begins on a sunny day in Italy around 4.30 when um, an unknown artisan turned the sky blue. Something like that. I don't remember the first version. And it now reads, uh, our story begins on the east coast of Italy on a sunny day, sometime around the year 430 CE, when artisans entered a small chapel and turned the sky blue, right? So many, many sentences we've written are unrecognizable in the final version. But but that one kind of held. That one kind of held. And, and I have to tell you, I, was, I mean, I wrote about this. I was inspired by, there are lots of reasons to start with that chapel. And there are lots of reasons to start with the figure of Gala Placidia, this, this Roman empress, in part because she's really interesting, in part because she's a woman and we wanted to, from the start, not begin with emperors. There are plenty of kings and men doing stuff, but um, I mean, that was a deliberate choice, in part because her story is so powerful. She, she spans the whole region. Everything, about, everything we want to talk about in the fifth century, her life embodies. But also because I read a science fiction book about a mosaicist that talked beautifully about the mechanics of mosaic and the ways in which mosaic works different than fresco at creating light and space and three-dimensionality. And we wanted to begin with, we wanted to begin with light. And, and then a friend of mine who is a, a 20th century labor historian, he read it and he said, oh, look, you're doing labor history from, from the first line. It's artisans, right? The, the first characters in our book, which I didn't even know. I mean, the book was public. The book was a week from publishing before I I saw that, but it is true that the first character of, of this book are artisans taking glass and press them into the ceiling. So then we move into Gala Placidia. Um, we start to, to set the scene, sister of a Roman emperor, queen of the Visigoths, and eventually regent of the Western Roman Empire. So we're beginning to say who these people are. We say that she's a devout Christian. We're, we're again trying to, to identify that we've shifted into kind of the era of political Christianity. Perhaps she commissioned and ordered the decoration of the small chapel as a reliquary. Perhaps she planned it for her eventual tomb or to house the body of her son who died in infancy. Again, we're, we're trying to do, I mean, it's up to the reader whether it succeeds, but we're, this is all very intentional rhetorical choices, I guess is what I want to say. And that's a, that is, again, something I've learned from my, my public writing, where to sell an essay, you have to write like four really good sentences to get an editor interested, four, maybe six. If you write eight, you're probably gone too long. So there's a lot of rhetorical oomph packed into those six sentences. And then in, a, in a, you know, an 800-word essay on a very busy website like CNN.com with you know, millions of people visiting it every day, you better have a good first paragraph or they're not going to read the second one. They're going to click off. And so that is a kind of, you know, it's not sparse writing, but it's trying to really, really do a kind of work with every phrase. So the phrase to call attention to there is to house the body of her son who died in infancy, which who will also show up at the end of chapter one when Gala Placidia and her son are buried next to each other in Rome, which is a moment that, I mean, it, it fills me with emotion. I, I still get emotional when I read those that, those that last paragraph of that first chapter, which I have read now many times, but I think about, you know, this mother with her son's body, her whole life, her whole adult life. And then moving into trying to talk about light and color. You know, one of the things we say about the Middle Ages is that they lived in color, which is obvious 
but there is an idea that they lived in darkness, shrouded in you know, shrouded in shadows or even black and white. And so we have they, the the artisans pressed into, pressed into fresh mortar, glass tesserae, small trapezoidal shapes infused with the blue of lapis lazuli. They took glass infused with gold and filled the heavens with stars. And so, so this is this is we're trying to create a a very visceral moment and place that some people have seen in person, some people have seen pictures. But even if you've never, never, you know nothing about the mausoleum of Gala Placidia, which is not a mausoleum. That's people call it that, so we have to kind of go there. Um, but if you know nothing about this little chapel, you can feel it, you can see it, you can understand its impact. Yeah, one of the things that really strikes me about this paragraph is just how material and sensory it is that you could really get a sense of being there and of seeing and and feeling the space. And one of the things I really wanted to ask you about is that when historians talk about narrative history or writing for a more popular audience, they talk about how they need to draw out those small details that they find in the sources of color and smell and sound. I work usually on the 20th century, and so I am drowning in sources. <laughs> right. But for a medievalist, there's a lot less to draw from when it comes to those sorts of details. So how do you how do you work on mining what you do have available to make it come to life? There's a couple different things. So first of all, our we another part of our original plan was to go to these places. So we could do we could do the narrative nonfiction trick. I mean, I, I don't use the word trick dismissively, but right, if if you pick up a bunch of narrative nonfiction books, including history books, the author will often locate themselves in the place. So you know, I walk through Stonehenge and watch the the sun rise over the, you know, over the stone, whatever. So we were going to go. First of all, going to Italy sounds nice and going to Aachen <laughs> and maybe Istanbul, maybe Jerusalem. We didn't really, we didn't really have a clear plan. Um, but by the time that became possible to plan, we had a pandemic. So, so that took away one tool. And I think in the end, on a kind of a prose level, it's good. It forced us to to work differently. It forced us to work in the realm of the imagination of what it would be like to be in there rather than the easier realm. I mean, it's still, it's still work. And again, it's a, it's a good trick. I use it all the time. In this essay, I'm writing about the desk. I'm writing about the desk arriving in my, my living room so that I can, you know, and my hands on it, right? It's a great trick, but we couldn't do it. So we had to, we had to think differently about, about it. What I like to do is start by reminding myself that medieval people were human that they had all the sensory capacities and complexities and emotional layers that we have for good and ill, the capacities for good and evil wrapped up in each one of us, and then to try to think about what it would feel like to be there. And that's why it's so important for historians like me to get conversant in art history, to really get, and material history and archaeology. That doesn't mean that I'm an art historian, but, you know, if I'm reading a text that tells a story. That text may well have had a pretty small distribution. I'm often in my scholarship look, working on um, hagiographic texts about the movement of relics around, and these they're important sources, but they're not very relatively few people are are holding that document in their hands. What they're doing is they're going to the church. They're hearing the story told to them by the by the perhaps the same priest who wrote wrote it down. They're looking at artistic depictions of it and thinking about it. They're encountering. They're running their. You know, there's a there's a huge marble plaque between the 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 ducal palace and the church of san marco uh in venice that i that i've written about um and because the the ducal palace is a museum you have to pay for and san marco is a church that's free the doors are locked and with a great deal of effort i got the doors unlocked and then the guards just left me there and closed the door and <laughs> this i mean it's a huge plaque i don't have the dimensions at hand but right at waist height the marble is worn smooth because people walked there and ran their hands along it. And you better believe I ran my hand along it. Um, I mean, it's fine. The marble plaque is fine. I did not damage it. But I, I just couldn't resist. To, I, mean, I couldn't resist. Um, and so to think about, right, the, the procession of these people walking in a pretty dark hallway, because there's no windows there, lit by candles, lit by torches, running their hands along this big marble plaque that is telling a very specific story. Those are the kind of moments that I think you can really use to, to locate a reader in a place and a time. I want to turn now to asking you a little bit about advice you've gotten about writing. Are there any influential pieces of writing advice that stand out to you? 
You know, what I do is I just try to read really good writers and think about how they're telling their stories. And even if they're doing writing that is very different than what I do. So Helen Rosner, the food writer, I just reread her, her, her long story about Olive Garden, something like Midnight in the Garden of Eternal Breadsticks or some brilliant thing. And it's a, it's a perfect, it's a perfect essay that, that works in about three different time frames. And I don't write like that at all. But I, I mean, just the ways in which she, the, the moves she makes, the ways in which she connects things, that is the kind of writing that really locates, really works for me. Uh, my parents got me a subscription to The New Yorker when I um, went off to grad school. And, and now, you know, now I read my phone. Now I read Twitter. Um, <laughs> but at the time, I, you know, at night, I would not read my phone. I would read an article in The New Yorker and think about it. And I often thought those articles were about 3,000 words too long. But the way they took really complicated things, whether in neuroscience or American history or film criticism or Louis Menand writing about higher education, that was a, a writer that really did a lot. I mean, just, you know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about essays as essays and then trying to, as I started to take myself more seriously as an essayist, to try to do that kind of work. Um, so it's not specific advice about writing, but it is. Um, you know, it is just reading and reading and reading, but reading with an eye towards thinking about how is this piece put together? And that's true with very short pieces too. I mean, a, a CNN opinion essay is a different kind of essay that I, I don't aspire towards, you know, literary immortality, but I take those essays very seriously and I care about them. I think I had one last year that was read by 4 million people. I mean, 4 yeah. million people. And so I'm I'm glad I wrote it pretty well, but I wrote it in a way that it could be read by four million people. I mean, I didn't I didn't know that I didn't know that one was going to happen. Um, but to again think about you know what are the pieces that are short and powerful and grab you and make you read to the end in the in the genres you want to work in, you know to to really to really do that. Again, I have a fraught history with writing. I, I have both of my parents were historians. My mom has been reading my writing since second grade, but I and and I and that. That's a, that was amazing and helpful, but I can't tell you it was easy. She was a very tough critic in kind of a classic New York Jewish mom kind of way. And so it was wonderful, but, but, but awkward and challenging. Yesterday, just yesterday, uh, this is being recorded in late March, my advisor from grad school called The Bright Ages brilliant. So mm. that was amazing. I don't think she's ever called a piece of my writing anything like brilliant in all of the, the, <laughs> the I mean, she read a lot of my writing in grad school and it was mostly like, there are good ideas here, David, but the writing needs work. So, you know, I, I've had lots of mentorship, but I can't say it's been, it's not all been, David, you're this great writer, go for it, rah, rah. It's more like, well, you've got good ideas, but the writing needs work. That in itself, at least for someone else, is quite encouraging though to hear just to... A reminder that writing doesn't have to flow brilliantly the first time. I really want to say that. I want to say it again and again. It's why I opened this conversation by saying I'm dyslexic, is that I am I am now a widely published writer. Um, it's a little weird for me to say. I have plenty of strange feelings about that. But but I did cross 500 published essays last year at some point. I have a list. You know, I hit sort by number. It told me it was over 500, right? That's That's <laughs> an absurd number of essays. I now have a book that is selling pretty well um, and being reviewed in, in publications really positively. You know, it's, it's, I have succeeded on a certain level at becoming at least a kind of a mid-list author um, and mid-list mid -list columnist in a, in a really gratifying way. And I am not a natural writer. And I have taught natural writers. I have taught writers who as freshmen were just infinitely better at me at putting sentences and arguments together. I love them. They're great fun to read and great fun to grade. But I don't have any advice for them. Just keep writing. Good. Um, you know, take care of your mental health. Keep writing. Eat your salad. You know, <laughs> good. Keep going. But for, for non-natural writers, but people who have ideas, I really think you can, you can teach yourself and you can do the work. And, and the other thing that I didn't say earlier is, is that you, you, do, you can be deliberate about it. During the period where I really decided to commit to blogging, I mean, to, to, to writing, I, I started a blog because I had more ideas than I could find outlets for by a lot. And every morning, as, again, as my kids are eating breakfast, I would start trying to write 200, 300 words. And I did it every morning. I did it the way that athletes get up and do 100 sit-ups. I do not do 100 sit-ups or push-ups every morning. But I did try to write a couple hundred words five days a week 
um, for a couple of years. And I don't do that anymore, but it was, you know, it was just, I have an idea. I have an emotion. I have a reaction to something in the news or in my personal life or something I read. What would it look like to write a couple hundred words about it in the next 30 minutes? And some days there was pretty good. And other days it was terrible, but I did it. And I did it on purpose. Again, in my late thirties, this is not, this is not me as a 14 year old learning to journal. In my late thirties, I started doing this kind of work and I do think it's paid off. Are there historians broadly defined <laughs> whose work you admire and, and read? Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a huge number of historians. I mean, way, way, way too many to, to, to talk about. In some ways, though, what I'm really interested in are people who are doing work that is clearly historical, but are not coming out of the history discipline. Well, I guess, I mean, I guess there's a bunch of things I want to say about that. So first of all, we are in kind of a golden age of public historical writing in every way except getting paid for it. And, you know, being able to make a living doing it is really important and it's a problem. But like, but historians are writing all over the place from, you know, the, the great Heather Cox Richardson to uh, the work they're doing in perspectives now at the AHA, the essays are publishing there, these great, great editors. I mean, the great new editor, but I mean, in general, the team at the AHA is really trying to, to push the boundaries of what this publication can do. Just just enormous numbers of, and, and outlets that are really focusing on historical writing. And it's really, it's really fantastic. Um, and, and it's great. But, you know, I, I think been thinking a lot because uh, I, I read it about Clint Smith's How the Word is Passed. And Clint is a poet. He, and he does have a PhD, can't remember what it's from, in, but it's not in history. And he, because I remember when he defended, you know, number one New York Times bestseller, he's writing history, he's writing about history, he's writing about storytelling. And that's the kind of thing, you know, that I read and try to really think about how, how it works and how it puts together. And the other writer I really admire, and she's on my mind because I'm going to get to do a panel with her, is Irina Dumitrescu, this, this wonderful essayist and, and early medieval literary scholar. So historian broadly, but she kind of, she, she, she writes about other things in ways that I just find so, so engaging, but that clearly are informed by her work as her training as a, as a scholar. So that's what I look for. I'm interested in people who have a certain kind of training and then write a different sort of thing and how that plays out. That really often grabs me. The other great book I just read is called Fierce Appetites by Elizabeth Boyle. I think that's her name. I'm going to check. I have actually have it here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a Fierce Appetites by Elizabeth Boyle, and she's an expert in medieval kind of Irish literature. And it's about, you know, my dad died in January and her dad died a few years ago, and she started writing this memoir. And it's a memoir that's about medieval Irish literature and also parenting and her childhood and her dad and sex. And it just weaves in and out. And then she retells, she retells medieval stories, and then she talks about her life. And I think if you pitched it to me, I would be very skeptical that that was going to be a good book. And I devoured it. It was just, it was just spectacular. I'm curious to know, do you think of yourself as being part of a, of a writing community? And how do you cultivate that? So I do, and I cultivate it through Twitter, is the real, is the real answer. You know, on, on Twitter, there is a community of writers. And there, actually, there are, there are dozens of communities of writers that overlap. And you can join them. And you have to join them slowly over time. You can't join them for the sake of promoting yourself or getting, but you have to just authentically join them. And they're, they're academics. So there's medievalists and about other, other academics who are talking about writing. But it's also, it is the space where journalists and editors hang out and talk about journalism and editing. And by journalists, I mean, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning reporters, investigative reporters, but also columnists and essayists and op-ed writers like me. It's where we hang out and share each other's pieces and talk about each other's pieces and criticize each other's pieces. Um, but it, that is where the discourse is. You know, when I talk to grad students in particular who are interested in this, I say, you know, you don't have to, you don't ever have to tweet, but you should go on Twitter and you should see, you should find people like me who are engaged in these communities and see who we talk to. And it has been really, it's been amazing. Um, you know, from, I mentioned Helen Rosner earlier, we got to know each other on Twitter. She asked me to write a piece. We've had, we've had brunch together. You know, I, I am overwhelmed with her, the quality of her work, but we get to chat on Twitter sometimes. Talia Lavin, um, who wrote about white supremacy and, and has this great substack now. Liz Lenz, I mean, just some, just sort of off the top of my head, right? These, and what I, the reason I mentioned these three people is that they're amazing writers 
who without social media, I never would have met. And then there's all the people who I haven't personally met, but whose writing I might well not have encountered and who I am, I am richer for having their writing put in front of me on a daily basis. And Clint Smith too. I mean, before he had 400,000 Twitter followers and New York Times number one bestseller, he was an interesting writer on Twitter. I could easily not have heard of his book or heard of his writing until the moment it hit that list. I, but instead, I kind of had, I had years of reading his writing, and I, I, I'm a better thinker. I'm a better American, better historian for having done so. And so I really, for all the, the chaos and crisis and, and terrible things that happen on social media, the specific community of writers on Twitter has been really important for me. Is there anything about writing that I haven't asked you that you want to talk about? There is one thing, which is to say, I still believe in highly specialized scholarship written for a very small community of like-minded and like-trained scholars. And I think it's really important that someone like me, who has left that kind of writing behind, I do not plan to do any more scholarly writing. I would happily co-write something, but you're going to have to do all the footnotes. I'm just I'm just done with a, you know, I, I mean, I'm happy to cite my work. I love citing my work, but like, I'm just, I'm just not going to do, you know, academic journal articles uh, and, and the work that goes into that. I've left a certain kind of jargon behind. And so I think it's really important that sometimes, I mean, all the criticisms of academic writing can be true. There's plenty of very bad academic writing out there or where the ideas are good, but the writing is terrible. But I actually think there's a lot of great academic writing, but sometimes what you want to say is so specific that you have to you have to write in that specific, highly precise, maybe technical, maybe jargon-laden kind of way to say the thing you want to say. I think that's great, and we should keep supporting it. I, I do think we often rush people to their first book because of the way the tenure clock works, and that's a problem that we could address. But those books that come out of a dissertation that are you know, the product of 15 years of incredible thinking. And, and I mean, I know for me, my engagement with my dissertation archive was never, would not have been able to be replicated again, because it was a multi-year process before I had kids. So like, it could never, you know, you could give me, I could win a MacArthur and I would not be able to do the same kind of slow work in the Venetian archives as I did as a grad student. I love those books that come out of that kind of that kind of intense research that are written for me, for me as a, an expert in 13th century medieval Venetian hagiography. I want those books just as much as I want the big picture things. And I think academics, we need to stop denigrating that kind of specialized writing, even as we open pathways for people to do more, more and varied kinds of work. Is there anything you're working on now that you'd want to talk about? I am really at a crossroads. And I have to say that since the book was published, writing has gotten a little bit hard again. You know, my dad did die. It is the Minnesota winter. I have serious mental illness. There's plenty of other things going on, but a lot of these things, not my dad passing, but has been true the whole time. When my mom passed away, I wrote, I wrote a fantasy novel for my daughter that in fact is filled with missing mothers, which I only figured out when someone told me like <laughs> a year later, it's really obvious. It's like the most dominant theme of the book. But I wrote a whole novel, right? Like, I mean, I wasn't mentally healthy, but I, but the writing was flowing. So I'm kind of trying to figure out what comes next. But the thing that I really want to do, if I can find a way to, to support it, is do for history, conceived broadly, what the best science journalism does for science. Mm. Just to say when a scientist has a finding, they publish an article or a, a press release, often pretty quickly, I mean, or a preprint their communications team puts out a press release at the university and sends it out to journalists and journalists cover it. They cover it as an event, as a finding. When I get the chance to write about other historians' work, not just the things they do, but how they do it, the historians themselves, people read it. My most read pieces at Smithsonian Magazine have essentially been historiographical in nature. But there is no, you know, there are now history sections to write about, you know, the past. But the history sections are not to write about historians. So I really want to cover the work that historians are doing as historians. And I think there's a huge audience for it. And so that, that could be the next big project ahead of me. 
Well, David, thank you so much for your time and for for sharing so much about your writing process with me. This has been great. Thank you for having me. I really, I really love this podcast and I want everyone to listen to it. Another big thank you to Dr. David Perry for joining me on this episode of Drafting the Past. And as always, a big thanks to you for continuing to listen and to share the show. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the books mentioned in each episode, including this one. Purchasing books through the links at draftingthepast.com is not only a great way to support our authors, but a small portion of each purchase helps to keep the podcast going. Happy writing!